Hey there, Internet, and welcome to the Transatlantic Podcast, a conversation across the pond between two transgender people. My name is Luxander, and I will let my co-host introduce herself. Hi, my name is Kat, and I am British. Yeah, I'm very American, if that wasn't clear already. <laughs> That's our gimmick. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, it's the gimmick. It's the gimmick. Um, so today's uh, subject is uh, last time we talked about coming out and sort of introduced ourselves, if you want to check that podcast out. But today we are going to be talking about basically uh, medical treatment for transgender people and the basically like the history of diagnostic uh, manuals and how treatment has changed over the course of time and how it's different from the United States compared to the UK. And I figured we could start out with some general information about what kinds of treatment that trans people get. Do you want to start there? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I found like some of the history a bit hard to research. Like, I just, yeah. not, there's not a lot written about it, but certainly like we both know what's going on right now. So we can go over that a little bit. Um, yeah, but in, in the UK, I'll just dive, dive right in. You basically have two options for getting um, treatment, for like, getting medical treatment if you choose to pursue it. And I guess I'll start there. Um, you can go private if you have lots of money. Most people do not. And um, through pri- through um, private healthcare, basically, it's a lot. It's qu- fairly quick. You get your diagnoses, get your hormones. Sometimes it doesn't um, translate through, so the NHS sometimes won't take private prescriptions depending on who you go through. And there are certain people in the in the UK, um, Dr. Webberly, for one, over the internet, who does who provides for trans people and is a little more anonymous, and she sort of pushes for more freedom to get hormones and stuff, which we need. The other option, and one that I know more about and what most people go through, is the NHS, which is a big and complicated beast that is incredibly underfunded and endlessly frustrating. Um, the long and short of the problem with this system is basically the tra- the trans healthcare is stuck within mental health, which is already woefully underfunded. Yeah. And the NHS as a whole, especially since the Conservative government took over in the last <laughs> decade or so, has been <laughs> similarly underfunded and subject to a series of budget cuts, which only benefits the friends of the people in power this was not meant to be a political podcast, but, you know, sometimes you can't <laughs> help it. Um, basically forcing privatisation um, of our health system. So even as, more, as people pledge to put more fun, money into mental health and more money to help trans people get um, fewer wait, less waiting time, shorter waiting times and more surgeries and stuff, um, the increase, if it even is there does not match up to the decrease in funding of the whole system. Um, <laughs> so I could go on about this a while. I don't know if you want to yeah. take your reins for a bit or you want me to carry on. Uh, <laughs> well, let's, let's uh, suss out before we delve into that too deeply. Um, yeah. It's very similar. Well, it, it's basically identical, the types of treatment that we have, uh, like, regardless of, like, how you get them. Yeah. The basic ones are, like... Uh, therapy like not everybody does that but a lot of people do and in some situations it's a requirement that's Mm -hmm. I think something that's in common between the U.S. and the U.K. is that sometimes uh it's required that you go to therapy for a period of time and get a letter yeah before you can pursue like additional medical treatment and uh 
social transition is another thing that pretty much everybody has in common and that everybody has difficulty with. And social transition is sometimes required during therapy in order to get your letter to a referral to like an endocrinologist who will then give you like hormone blockers. If you're a teenager, uh, you can get like hormone replacement therapy, which would be estrogen and progesterone or testosterone, depending on where you're coming from. Um, I should add just in there before we carry on. The um, progesterone is actually very rarely um, given out, um, okay. partially because its um, efficacy is yet to be proved in transgender people. Um, basically, is, we, have, is... we haven't been researched a lot. And um, I know certainly my, I, when I asked about progesterone with my therapist, because I have to go through a therapist to talk about these things, um, she said basically there's not enough evidence to justify prescribing it. But some doctors will. And some people okay. swear by it, but the evidence is currently inconclusive. Okay, I mention it just because I know at least two trans women who do take it. Um, I yeah. don't know anything about its efficacy. Uh, yeah, yeah. well, certainly like um, uh, estri- estradiol and a testosterone blocker is usually the way to go. And people have progesterone if they, sometimes if they feel like the breast growth is inadequate, it's because anecdotal evidence that it helps with that. Okay. Uh, so yeah, there's a couple of different options in terms of uh, hormones that you can take. And, and like, uh, like you mentioned, there's... Um, testosterone blockers, which are almost ubiquitous among pre-surgery or non-surgery trans women. Um, they're not so common among transmasculine people, but I'm interested in trying them, and I, I need to figure out something because they're kind of expensive. But Yeah. Um, it's tricky as other... well because if, you, if you're suppressing your... Um, if you're suppressing... Uh, suppressing... If you're... If you go too long without, a, without any, like, large levels of a sex hormone you're in danger of developing osteoporosis, which, uh, <laughs> which is a big deal. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, I, ha- I, ha- I do testosterone injections, so yeah. I wouldn't be... Like, you're correct. Like, you can't take uh, a blocker without supplementing another hormone, basically. Mm. So well, you're not supposed to be to, clear. <laughs> yeah, you, you really medically shouldn't. Like, yeah. it's, you really should not do that thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of people especially in the UK where you often have to wait years to get any medical intervention, will do what's called DIY. And this is fairly dangerous, and I'm not sure we can condone it, but I understand yeah. why it happens. Um, basically, these, basically, what happens is people get desperate and they order pills off the internet. Um, when you order off the internet, you can't tell if what you're ordering is legitimate. And even if it yeah. is, it's expensive. It's very, very expensive. And it's sort of dodgy, and you cannot control if something runs out. You have to switch to something else. Maybe that's more expensive. And more, most importantly, you can't unless you're getting your bloods. Some you have someone like a local doctor who's agreeing to take your bloods for you and look at your blood levels, make sure they're okay. It's extremely dangerous to not know how your body is reacting to these things and not have a professional monitoring them. Yeah, it's it's. I think even more dangerous with like testosterone because like there is a black market for testosterone because of people who use it to juice like there's a reason that it's a schedule three drug in the united states because people use it like as a steroid it it, like it is a steroid Mm. um so yeah abuse of the black market is definitely something that is an issue everywhere like you know people here will order their medications from places in canada yeah (laughs) (laughs) because it's like easier I did see as well, um, there was that Zinnia Jones video a while back about, um, they, they do sell cis men testosterone just based, based on very nebulous symptoms. Yep. Yeah, which seems nuts to me given how hard it is for some trans dudes to get testosterone. 
Yeah, it is. It is very weird. It, it's a. I don't know if it's happening so much in the UK as it is in the US, but there's like a big thing in the US right now of like our men don't have enough testosterone or like it's an epidemic <laughs> that the men in this country don't have enough testosterone and it's causing all these problems. And I'm like, okay, cool. I don't really see where you're getting that statistical information. Maybe it's like a, like a just a branch of resulting scare of having like women on birth control peeing their estrogen into the water system you know like yeah i don't know the smith of estrogen in the water has been around for a while (laughs) yeah so i was just wondering like maybe that's growing from that i I think that's an american thing though i mean like the differences here we don't have advertisements for medicines besides like basic like painkillers so we don't get the kind of person saying ask your doctor about this medication because that's completely unethical and should never happen and um yeah so i mean we will in a few years once the nhs has been inevitably dismantled by um um empress palpatine um (laughs) but for now we're spared a bit of that although the attitudes remain similar i suppose yeah most definitely Mm. um and then the other main medical thing that people will pursue is uh surgeries um not everybody does that. Like, I'll, we'll touch on accessories first um, before we hit surgeries because with accessories, there's a lot of different things that you can do, and it's different, very, very drastically different uh, for like female to male, quote unquote, or male to female, quote unquote, trans people, or like non binary people, it's even more complicated. Um, mm. So, for on the trans masculine end of the spectrum, like if you were uh, assigned female at birth and then are trying to like socially transition, but you can't do surgeries. What we tend to wear are chest compressors that are called binders. And there's a couple of good reputable websites on the internet that are considered like, this is a good place to get those and uh, not sponsored or anything, but I recommend GCTB. It's just, they're, it's a really good company. Underworks are fine, but they're not great. That's the one that I, that was kind of popular when I first got my first binder was Underworks. Um, And then there's, Devices like Packers, um, which basically it's what it sounds like. It's a thing that you put in your pants. And there's stand-to-pee devices that are available. And, yeah, other like prosthetics for like doing sex things also. But that's not quite as common. Yeah. Can I just ask, I mean, it's, it's going to be a really personal question, I suppose. How, sure. how What does stand-to-pee devices sort of look like when you're using them? Does it look like a penis? Or is it like it depends. a tube? Because uh, you can get different things. Like, there there are very simplistic, like, it's more or less a funnel mm. type ones. Um, but then there's also ones that are, like, I actually have one, and I reviewed it on my YouTube channel. And dear Lord, it has fucking <laughs> five 5,000 views on that video, and I normally don't go over, like, a couple of hundred. It's crazy. Nice. Um, but that one actually looks like a penis. So it's one that you're supposed to be able to use at a urinal. And it actually functions fairly well it takes finagling to get used to it Mm. without like spilling everywhere but i have used it passably at the urinal before yeah i mean i guess penises you need to get used to using them anyway (laughs) yeah basically i'm so used to having them there in the way yeah i'm sort of trying to get over my giggling at just the other word penis penis (laughs) just use the word yeah that was enough apparently Um, (laughs) yeah I I don't know like uh, how much I can talk about a device like sort of accessories on the um, male to female in scare quotes end um, because a lot of them um, I haven't ended up using 
So, like, some people will use what, um, breast forms, which are basically silicone inserts or similar, like, pla- sort of plastic polyester... Um, I'm getting my words mixed up. But inserts, they use basically um, emulate the shape of boobs, sort of like a packer, but for your chest. Like silicone things? Yeah, basically. And you like put them, stuff like... stuff in your bra. Exactly. So it's like stuffing your bra, but with something that's, like, sort of feels more... Um, less like a, a bag of sand... And, yeah. <laughs> and more like an actual A plus. Breast. Yeah. A plus reference. <laughs> I'm trying to get it in. Um, thank you. Um, yeah. And there's, um, is it gaffs we were, we were talking about? Um, yeah. I have no idea how they work. They sound very, very complicated, but basically to just sort of tuck your penis away so people can't see it. It's especially useful for like swimming and stuff if you want to do that and don't want to have to... Um, Expose yourself. Alternatively, you could wear a swim skirt if you wanted to do something yes. like that. Which would yes, be a bit those easier. exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, gaffs are a thing. I feel like I had something else to say about masculine end of the thing. Mm. Oh, oh, oh. That is, uh, if you are going to bind as a person with breasts, wherever you are on the gender spectrum, do not... Use ace bandages or duct tape because you will break a rib. <laughs> Just PSA, buy a binder. If you can't afford one, crowdsource on the internet to all your trans friends. They'll help you. Yeah. I, I do, um, I think, um, I, did I say this last week? Um, that um, if, you, if you are, like, especially if you're non-binary, if you are trying to, don't want to damage your breast tissue, perhaps consider, like, wearing, like, a compression sports bra instead if you can handle that. Um, because binders can damage breast tissue over long periods of time. Yeah, that's mostly, uh, basically breasts that are like very large are are more likely to develop this type of damage. And it's also, it's also fat redistribution because for a lot of people, like it's not only that the breast tissue that they actually have on their body is big. It's that they also have a lot of fat in that part of their body. So Mm. as like one of the things that I'm sure you're aware that hormones do is redistribute the fat across your body because people with testosterone, most of the fat on their body is concentrated on their stomachs and like on their faces. Whereas, uh, for women, it's more like on the hips and the thighs and the, you know, the sides. Yeah. (laughs) They make the curviness happen and the boobs also. Yeah. Uh, so, basically, like, the larger breasts are more susceptible to damage from t- from wearing a binder for too long and, like, having having the, the like, floppiness of them after, they, after you've been yeah. on tea uh, can hurt it. Basically, it's, there's time constraints. Like, you're, you shouldn't wear your binder for more than eight hours a day, pretty much. And... If you go over that, you're more likely to cause damage. But if you keep it below eight hours a day, and maybe not every single day, then you should be clear, usually. Or ask your doctor if you're not certain. <laughs> ask your doctor. They were, but they probably won't know. That's Go on true. all the message boards. <laughs> That's an ongoing problem with trans healthcare, actually, that, mo- that a lot of doctors haven't encountered, or they don't think they've encountered a trans person before. And it can make it quite difficult um, when you try and receive treatment from them, and they'll be like, oh give me a week to look this up and sometimes they don't right. go back to you and sometimes they're like, oh, I don't know what to do about this. Ask someone else. Um, obviously, it's going to get better. It is getting better. Um, but be aware that you might have a couple of um, 
you might trip a couple of times before you actually get what you need, unfortunately. Yeah. And that's especially difficult with getting surgeries, which was the next thing that I wanted to touch on. Um, what, uh, what kind of surgeries do trans women get? Um, well, <laughs> um, I'm just trying to think of the way I could introduce this. Um, in terms of the, I'll start for the UK with the, what you can get in the UK first. Um, the NHS, thankfully, very thankfully, covers um, sexual reassignment surgery or gender reassignment surgery. I don't know what you want to call it, which is genital surgery or vaginoplasty. Um, I think the commonly accepted term is genital reconstruction surgery. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just see it as GRC. I don't think about it. No, it's okay. GRS. I'm getting so confused. Yeah. Um, So this is basically um, surgery for your downstairs. And there are several several different ways you can go about this. And I believe um, the NHS has all of these on because I talked to my therapist about it like a couple of weeks ago. Um... There's what most people think of as um, basically penile inversion, which, um, which, which involves the creation of a vaginal canal out of the penile shaft and um, sort of a clitoris and inner labia and stuff out of the, um, the, t- the tip of the penis and sometimes the scrotum, especially if you're circumcised or if you've got a small penis. Um, other options, you can have just the, um, just the outer stuff and no vaginal canal. And you can also have an orchiectomy, which is just um, the removal of the of the scrot of the balls, if um, if we can be crude, um, which we can. Um, yeah. Other op- There are other options available for um, certain other areas, um, but only under special circumstances. You can get breast augmentation if it's kind of affecting your mental health. Um, it's the same with um, breast with breast augmentation in cis women. And um, you can get facial feminization surgery, which is basically plastic surgery reconstruction of the face, so like rhinoplasty and stuff like that, um, forehead reconstruction, lip lifts. But uh, the NHS will only fund these if it's really, really distressing you and you can, call, you can kind of prove to them that it's causing you enough anguish to be worth funding. Now, you can get these options through different surgeons, through pro- privately, and there's, some, there's options for the UK people in Spain, uh, the facial team and in Belgium and a couple of surgeons in the UK as well so like Keith Altman but um, obviously these are several thousand pounds so most people won't be able to just afford these out of pocket and if you're really set on them you're going to have to really really go for it um, the other, only other surgery I can think of right now is voice feminization surgery which is very controversial and um, the only re- and I don't think I've heard anyone in the NHS talk about it or even suggest it um I believe you can get it performed by Supon in China. Not not Supon. Yes, on in um, South Korea, and um, it basically involves shortening the vocal cords to make your pitch higher. Mm-hmm. It it won't fix your resonance or your um, the sort of the tone of your voice, but it can have a higher pitch sometimes, and it's incredibly expensive and fairly invasive. So put that last on your list if you're planning a list of them, and you're rich enough to afford them. But yeah, the NHS thankfully funds some, and it's got some, it's got some, it's got a few um, fairly uh, well-regarded surgeons. Although the wait for those, as always, is intense, and um, you can see, you can be waiting years from your initial diagnosis to surgery. Um, myself, I've just got an appointment to see to get my recommendation for surgery in May this year, so I got an appointment. I started. 
on this NHS pathway years ago, like three years ago now, I think about. Um, and now in three months, I'm going to be getting a recommendation to get on the waiting list for surgery. So that sort of gives, should give you an idea of um, what you get for free. Yeah. <laughs> As opposed to paying for it. Going through the public health care system over there. Yeah. A little bit different. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the stuff for trans men is also quite interesting. I don't know how much how much you um know about how the UK system works, but why don't you tell us a little bit about um, the um, options for transmasculine people? Uh, well, I first wanted to mention uh, that I know one non-binary person who has had uh, voice surgery. Oh. Uh, also, one thing you didn't mention was a tracheal shave, which doesn't actually do anything to affect how your voice sounds but it does just reduce the bump of your trachea yes yes i forgot about that one that is that is funded by the nhs yeah i sort of got it mixed up within the facial feminization surgery because lots of people get it done at the same time yeah exactly um and speaking to that um i i follow a trans woman on youtube steph sanyati who is like basically one of my favorite people (laughs) and she had facial feminization surgery in like december and she's doing phenomenally but it's like really it's a crazy intensive surgery like the way that they reconstruct the brow bone is amazing you can't you can't just like shave it down they have to like break it and reshape it it's it's nonsense oh it's nuts they can take it off and put it back on you're swollen for months afterwards most of the time like usually at least six months yeah steph is actually not having a whole lot of swelling like the most swelling she's having is like around her jaw because Mm -hmm. she also got a jaw reduction yeah um and a lip lift but like yeah it's it's amazing like how different you look but how exactly the same at the same time yeah it's scary like it's just it is not it is sort of night and day and also exactly the same it's you have to see pictures i suppose to understand there are a couple of um british trans trans women who've got it done i think you can look up online um charlie from a girl for all seasons on youtube she's um she had it done with um facial team i believe in spain and um, Evie a, and Evie Andrew, who's done some stuff on YouTube too. There's a really popular surgeon in the United States in Boston who Steph went to, who like specializes in facial feminization surgery for trans women. Doctor Spiegel, I think, is his name. Yeah, I don't know if I'd recommend Spiegel just because his prices are so insanely large. Oh yeah, you you have to crowdfund in order to go there and get yeah. that done. There are surgeon. There are other surgeons that have a fairly that have a good reputation like almost as good as him, and they don't cost as much. Okay. But, <laughs> uh, so I'm supposed to be talking about my thing <laughs> and not your thing. I did look up. <laughs> I did look up um, transmasculine surgeries last week. So. Okay, cool. I can That's I can good. join in if you need to. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so my limited understanding of what it's like in the UK, like basically I follow, uh, I also follow Alex Birdie on YouTube and mm-hmm. he is a trans man who lives in the UK and his, boy, his boyfriend is also a trans man who lives there. And it's basically that same thing. They're going through the NHS, which, what does that stand for, by the way? National Health Service. Okay, basically what I thought it was. Yeah. Um, so the public health care service there in the UK. And uh, it, it's a, I think the waiting lists are a lot shorter for top surgery. Mm. Because he, I feel like he got his top surgery fairly quickly after going through the process of getting his letter and a surgeon's recommendation and like meeting with the surgeon for the first time and then the wait until his actual surgery date. It seemed like it was all like within a year. Yeah. 
So it's not super difficult to get hormones and then fairly uh, shortly after that yeah. get... Well, for yep. for this particular guy. What I will say is, after we come after we've gone through this and the surgeries bit, if if I can ramble on about how the NHS and getting hormones works, you'll understand how it's quicker for some people. Okay, okay, that sounds good. Yeah. Um, so the most common surgery for trans men and for like AFAB transmasculine people, uh, basically anyone who went through a feminizing puberty, um is top surgery, and in this instance, it would refer to basically removal of the breast tissue and chest masculinization. Like, they'll move things to make your chest look the way that it would look if you had just been born and went through puberty and didn't develop breast tissue. Um, And there's a couple of different ways to go about this. The most common, because most people don't have, like, extremely small breasts, um, is a double... I think it's called a double incision mastectomy. Mm. And what they do is, uh, this is the one that leaves people with the most scars. So if you see, you see like trans men with scars under what would be like their pec line, that's scars from this type of surgery. So because there's so much excess skin, they have to do, like it's a lot more invasive basically. They have to like go in and take out the material. And in this one, um, almost all sensation of the nipples is lost because they usually have to do a nipple graft, which involves severing that nerve, which would be incredibly long anyway if you have, like, very large breasts. Um, So that one is the most invasive and requires, like, the most downtime afterwards. Um, Then there's a couple of other surgeries for people with smaller chests. Um keyhole is the one for like people with extremely small breasts which is like literally they just make an incision around the areola and then like suck out the breast tissue and then like and then like sort of cinch up the skin like if your breasts are small enough then they don't need to move your skin around very much but the problem with keyhole is that it often doesn't get rid of the mammary fold which Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense like it's like if you're looking at a person with breasts it's that just slight shadow on the edge of, like, the outside of yeah. the breast. So that part often doesn't get completely removed because of the way that they just, like, sort of cinch the skin together like a like a draw bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and periareolar is another one that's becoming very popular. It's the one that that trans guy I follow got. It's the one that I would get if I were to get the surgery. And it functions very similarly to the keyhole, except that... If necessary, they also remove like a donut of skin around the uh, around the areola, and sometimes they'll reshape the areola. But the good thing with both of these surgeries is that your like sensation remains almost entirely intact. Yeah. So that can be really preferable to some people. Um, hmm. So that's that's top surgery basically, and then bottom surgery is very complicated <laughs> for <laughs> for trans guys and other people who want phalloplasty like there's two main surgeries one of them is metoidioplasty which is usually done after you've been on hormones for a an extended period of time and you've had quote unquote growth and it it basically they basically it's just like a they get rid of some things that are holding the material down so that it can be more up and then they sort of like wrap that material that they cut around it so it's like a little it's almost like a little peen yeah they use a skin at that point 
yeah, uh, they use like the surrounding material to create like a, a small penis type thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can, after getting metoidioplasty, get phalloplasty. Uh, and a lot, actually a lot of people do. A lot of people are unsatisfied with the results with metoidioplasty and end up getting phallo later. Mm-hmm. Phalloplasty involves taking skin from another part of your body, like uh, most commonly is your forearm. So you have to do like electrolysis or something like that to get rid of the hair on the skin from the donor site. Uh, some places also use skin from the thigh or from the buttocks and like they use that to create the shaft like sort of around um, the existing glands material Mm. and that can sometimes involve like four stages of surgery depending on who you go to and a lot of recovery time and then it's more complicated if you want to be able to pee out of it yeah or have it have an erection like it just gets it's ridiculously complicated and expensive and yeah very invasive this is the thing that i was gonna add here because in the uk you can get metoidioplasty and phalloplasty in the uk um they're both funded and oh good yeah so one of the one of the benefits of the nhs is that they sometimes do very expensive things so for example my antiandrogen is incredibly incredibly expensive and you never get it in the u.s for that region but the nhs pays for it and on the on the um, ftn side um phalloplasty is a very very expensive operation and the the one the nhs paid for is two stages and you should be able to pee and get erect at the end um so that's pretty fantastic <laughs> yeah i agree that's good stuff yeah i just wanted to add that because if oh. you don't feel like yeah you don't you won't have to pay out of pocket for that unless you have to um yeah yeah but it's it's worth yeah. noting as well that you don't need these surgeries and um, especially with um, trans with um, transmasculine people, a lot of transmasculine people don't get these surgeries. Like this, mm-hmm. the um, percentage actually a lot a lot higher for getting the surgeries for uh, trans feminine people, which um, is talking interesting. about like bottom surgery, like yeah. the surgery. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure. Because I think top, top surgery, surgery yeah. top surgery, I would think is more common for transmasculine people because like you sort of develop breasts on your own, and most people don't feel like they need augmentation from what they get from their natural puberty. Mm. Whereas, like, a lot of transmasculine people are like, please get these things off of me. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like it's, it's sort of um, the, the attitudes in the different populations is sort of a lot of trans trans women see, like, the, the bottom surgery as the thing they have to get. And with trans guys, it tends to be the top surgery. So, okay, that basically covers, like, the general information about the different kinds of treatment that we get. Oh, 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 uh, two more things. Uh vaginectomy is usually done along with phalloplasty which is like what it sounds like it's like a removal of the vaginal canal i have no idea how they do this yeah it's fucking it's crazy i don't get it it squicks me out a little bit um (laughs) there are some people also who will just have a hysterectomy so uh i know i at least one trans man who like his quote unquote bottom surgery was having hysterectomy and uh I never ha- I never ever know how to say this name, but it's like uophorectomy, which is the name for getting the ovaries removed. I think which, that's right. Yeah, uh, you can do a hysterectomy without having your ovaries removed, also. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of people do that just in case they decide to go off of hormones later, or if they don't have access to their hormones, because like you said, not having a hormone in your body is bad. So if you just leave the gonads intact, they'll start creating hormones of their own volition later if you stop, like, taking your hormone replacement therapy. Yeah. 
I should add while I remember, actually, <laughs> just before we go off the topic of surgeries, which I guess ran longer than we were expecting it to. Um, that um, I did just mention the um, genital surgery options in, in the UK. Um, in Thailand, they have some different options. And if you want to pay to go over there, you can. Um, it's a bit controversial as to whether they're better or not. Um, a lot of people on the internet seem to think they are. But I don't know if that's just because they pay more for them. There's no evidence. Obviously, no one can compare, um, can get two vaginas and compare which one's better. But <laughs> They um, might be more experienced over there because they've been doing it for longer. I mean, perhaps. As opposed to doctors over here. But it's been, they've been doing it for quite a long time in this country, too. But the techniques are different. Okay. So in, in um, Thailand, notably, um, they tend to use a more scrot- scrotum-based technique. So instead of so for the vaginal canal, they'll be using the scrotum lining instead of the um, instead of the penile shaft, and oh, that's been incorporated. Well, incorpor- that sucks. well uh, some people seem to like it. <laughs> um, some people swear by it, and um, it happens a little more over here as well. If you if you're not if you're circumcised, which is more rare in the UK, but it still happens um, than the US. Um, God, yeah, and... everybody's fucking circumcised over here. <laughs> Jesus. It's kind of annoying, actually. Oh, I know. <laughs> there's, just, there's a load of foreskin somewhere you can borrow. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> there are reconstructions you can do. Anyway, yeah. So these, um, and they also, like, they claim to have better sensation, and they also um, uh, claim to have more self-relubrication. So Suporn especially has, has makes this thing called a calpus gland, which is supposed to be like some like for erect for erectile sort of semi erectile function, um, so like more arousal is more obvious, and I think they move the calpus gland into the vaginal canal for the lubrication, but it's very complicated, and all these methods are super complicated. And well, just, yeah, it's fascinating though. Yeah, just go with your go with your go with your judgment. Um, Thailand um, can be cheaper if you're in the US. Um, it's up to you whether you'd want to do that. Personally, I advise staying in your home country especially if it's near, if you have a surgeon near you because the aftercare takes a long time and you want to be able to have your friends visit you and people help you and to be able to understand doctors if something horrible goes wrong yeah most definitely have a friend with you like if you're going to surgery and this is especially like an issue for trans people like if you don't have a family member who's willing to come with you and make sure that you get home okay after whatever inpatient stuff gets finished um like you know, I'm sure that there is a friend or two that you can reach out to who will be there with you because you cannot get yourself home after being under anesthesia. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It just, you can't do that. Yeah, and people like, even if you're on Thailand, you get to Thailand, you're going to have to fly back as well, and that's a pain when you basically can't sit down. Yeah, okay, so uh, now that we've discussed sort of what we generally get as treatment options for, for both types of transition... Um, I kind of wanted to run down, like, sort of the history of how it's been diagnosed in the United States over the course of the last, like, 40-ish years, um, and how treatment has evolved over here. And, like, you've been talking a lot about how treatment works over there, and I haven't mentioned it at all because I'm, like, saving it. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's bad. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So, in the United States... uh, it's the same as in the UK, like, the being trans is considered a mental disorder, which it has to be some kind of medical disorder in order to get medical treatment and whatever, so it's complicated. But uh, it was first added to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is uh, the criteria that 
doctors, uh, psychiatrists in the United States use to diagnose people. So it was in the DSM-3, which came out uh, in 1980. It was the first appearance of what they called, quote-unquote, transsexualism. And it established, uh, like, under transsexualism, it was called gender identity disorder. And there were actually a lot of subcategories for it at the time, which were weird and actually kind of difficult to, like, take notes on. But my takeaway was that this diagnosis was mostly oriented at people who um, have struggled with it since childhood, and they didn't really recognize adult transsexualism, as it would have been called at the time. So uh, that'll be important a little bit later in in my list of things to say. So in the DSM-4, which was published in uh, 1994, which was the year I was born, uh, the uh, the term transsexualism was replaced with gender identity disorder in adolescents and adults, and this is basically in the subcategory of sexual disorders. So, like the category is sexual disorders, the subcategory is gender identity disorder, and then there are like a couple more subcategories still in there to address like children versus adults. So at this point, we're recognizing it in adults. And then in 2013, the DSM-5 came out. There wasn't a lot of change to the definition of the term, but it's no longer called gender identity uh, disorder. It's called gender dysphoria uh, because people had, they were taking issue with the term disorder and how that implies that it like somehow wrecks your life to be trans, and that's Mm -hmm. not the case. Uh... So, in terms of getting treatment in the United States, it's changed quite a bit, and it's actually kind of difficult to get specific information on this, but as I mentioned, in the DSM-3, it required you basically to have had gender dysphoria as a child. So, this led to people who needed to get care, they kind of had to lie about their lives, basically. Like, they had to lie and say that they were... Um, that they had this problem since they were children, even if they didn't experience it until puberty or when they were, like, 30 years old. Um, And you have... This is called the Harry Benjamin Standards of Care. You have to, like, live as your preferred gender for at least a year, and during that time, you have to prove to a therapist's satisfaction that you are that gender. And a lot of this is heavily based on stereotyping, which uh, has included many trans women being criticized for wearing pants even or being worried about being criticized for wearing pants so they make sure to be like ultra feminine when they go to these therapist meetings because what they're trying to do is get a letter so that they can go to an endocrinologist who will then actually give them the hormones that they need um or whatever standard like whatever care standards they're going for um that is still used today uh, but it's being used less. This is this is the gatekeeping that is often referred to uh, in the United States when we're talking about the difficulty in getting care for hormones. And most of the information about this is about trans women. I don't hear a lot about this uh, regarding trans men. Mm. But yeah, you can't so see like, me nodding along with you, but you're doing it. Lo- yeah, it's okay. <laughs> it's pretty on on spot. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, nowadays. There are a lot of doctors, probably most of them, require at least some measure of uh, intervention with a psychotherapist before they will 
give you treatment uh, or you have to at least get a letter after one visit. Like there's a place uh, in Kansas City, Kansas, or maybe Kansas City, Missouri, whatever, in Kansas City <laughs> that you, you can just them. go like, yeah, whatever. It's all one big city. It's uh, it's like Portland. Actually, They're all like connected by portals. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but there are some places where you can go to a therapist to talk to them like twice and it's specifically trans healthcare. So they'll like write you a referral letter to an endo like really quickly. Um, but there are also informed consent clinics, which are basically like, I don't give a fuck clinics. And that's how I got my care. And it is literally the easiest way to go about it. If you can find informed consent clinics, if you're in the United States and you can find one in like within like five hours driving distance, totally worth it. I have to drive like three and a half hours to go to my clinic, but it's so worth it for the like lack of issue that it was. I just had to talk to someone, the nurse there for like a half an hour maybe longer, and then she was like, do you want to do your first shot in office? And I was like, hell yes, yes, let's do that. <laughs> Mistake, by the way, because it was super expensive, but oh. I got my first shot that day, and then I walked out with a prescription. One See, that's visit. The bit. That's the bit I wish we had in the UK, because it would... Yeah. Because the people don't seem to realize, even after all this time, that by the time pe- most people... Get to figuring out, get to going and telling someone they're trans. They've already, they've already been worrying about it for years and figuring it out. Yeah, and that's actually something that my nurse mentioned. Uh, is that she does this pretty commonly. There are people who go in every two weeks to get their shot at the office there. So like she's very familiar with this process, and uh, she mentioned that like in the course of us talking and her asking me questions like, oh, so you you know that it's gonna have this effect and you might not be able to have kids or whatever. Uh, she was like, yeah, everybody who comes in here seems to already know, like, basically <laughs> what the lowdown is. So we're just reviewing what you already know and making sure that, like, you have an understanding of it. And I was like, yeah, pretty much, like, I've done years of research. Yeah. She was like, yep, that's pretty much every single person who comes in here. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So if Should you get to... to that point, you definitely want it. What? Yeah. <laughs> You'd assume so. Yeah, I wish, I wish they had that attitude over here as well. They, they do kind of treat you like you don't know anything, even though most of us do. Like, even if you, if you say that you know what you're talking about, they assume you don't and say it anyway. I assume because they're, they have to be held very accountable. But, um, yeah, the only really new news I got when I when doing these things was um, with certain, like, UK-specific hormones and with certain surgery side effects we were going through last time, which is a bit troubling. But uh, <laughs> you'd think they'd mention them yeah. more. But, yeah. Um, could I just, um, quickly just go brief, a brief thing on how the NHS worked because I mentioned it last, last week a fair bit, I think, but just so it's all in one place. Um, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So the way that NHS care works in this country, or I guess it would be this country because the NHS or in Scotland, because there's a separate NHS in Scotland, um, um, you have to go to a GP um, you come out to them as trans and you ask for a referral to a gender identity clinic. Um, if they don't know what that is, tell them. Most of them don't. <laughs> and request the clinic that's closest to you or has the shortest queue. I would recommend the shortest queue because when I was doing it, the queue for the Leeds clinic was 18 months and now it's three years and a bit for your yes. first appointment. Yeah. When I got on, it was six months for Nottingham, which is where the place where my parents live. Um, so I was quite happy to do it there. Um, now that queue is over a year. Um, I think the shortest queue right now is Northampton, but by the time this comes out, that might not even mature either. (laughs) 
and there are only a few clinics in the UK. I I I could list off a few of them. I don't I, I don't I probably wouldn't get them all. But there's Leeds, there's Tavistock, Northum Northumberland. Northumberland? It's not Northumberland. Um what's the name of that county that's underneath mine? <laughs> Northampton Northampton, that's it. Okay. <laughs> Charing Cross, which is in London. And um there's a couple of other ones. Um not enough for the band. And basically you get recommendation there. If you're lucky and the admin doesn't go wrong, you'll get a letter through telling you when your first appointment is. It's going to be somewhere between, these days, somewhere between a year and three years, if you're lucky, and over that, if not. And, yeah, so ask, so ask people on, on, the, on Reddit or something where the, what the shortest queues are, because that's the, usually the quickest response you're going to get, because <laughs> the NHS moves slower than the internet. Um, yeah, once you get in there... Um, you'll have your first, you need two appointments. They're going to be three months apart um, to diagnose you. And basically you can get hormones on the second appointment if you're already presenting as your target gender and you have already legally changed your name and you're already out to everyone. Now, most people, when they're coming out, when they come to the doctor, they don't expect to have to have done all that stuff already, especially without hormones. But to get hormones, you need to already have changed your legal name. So there's, I have lots of legal documents that have um, my new name on it and my big beardy face, which is yeah. <laughs> very confusing. Wonderful. Yeah, it's awful. Um, it's not so bad for me because I sort of still look like the same person, but I've seen other people where it just you can't even tell, and it's just ridiculous. Um, yeah, so that happened. Um, what, what If you have money, what I think a lot of people recommend you do is do private while you're in the queue. So you get them, so you're paying a bit to get hormones and to get what you need and to change your name and to feel confident enough to do stuff like that and to change your presentation. And then get on the NHS when they let you and then do it all by the book and for free. Um, once you're in the NHS system, your appointments are three months apart, usually, if, and sometimes more. Um, most of that will involve just talking to a therapist they're making sure you know what you're doing trying to get you to go out to everyone trying to make you change your name if you haven't already and then you can request um, the free stuff they offer so surgery which they'll only offer you after you've been you had your testosterone blocked for six months if you're trans feminine um, I'm not sure what the process is for trans masculine people um, um, also, for transforming people, you can get um, eight free sessions of laser hair removal, which is fairly difficult to get because they have to deal with the admin of the laser places, which is also bad. Um, but it's it's pretty good, and I believe you get unlimited laser hair removal on other parts of your body, according to the clinic I was talking to. Um, you can get uh, voice training sessions; they fund those, and some other cool stuff as well. Um, so they do, they do a fair bit for you, but you do have to wade through a lot of gatekeeping and they basically every week, every time you go, they'll do a psychological assessment on you. You'll get a letter back basically saying this person is trans and also not a psychopath. Um, please continue (laughs) to give them hormones. It literally says that at the back of every one of my sheets. I don't know why she's scared I'm a psychopath. Um, eventually if you're lucky, um, which you will be if you wait long enough, um, they will refer to an endocrinologist, which is where, what they should have given you in the first place. And the endocrinologist will then look at your hormones and take care of all that because the therapist isn't qualified to deal with that. Um, This takes way too long and only happens once your estrogen is high in trans feminine people. um, And then they will start trying to give you um, um, testosterone blockers. The only testosterone blocker basically the NHS funds right now is a very expensive 
um, basically implant or injection um, called gazerolin, which basically tricks your pituitary gland into thinking there's too much, too many hormones being produced and makes it basically stop your balls working, which is pretty cool. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for um, estrogen, you basically you have a choice between you start with pa- with pills because the NHS loves pills, and if that doesn't work, you can go with patches or gel, which you kind of rub on your arms and sort of wait for it to dissolve. In the US, you also have the option of injections, which uh, anecdotally I've heard are quite quite um, efficacious. Um, I've but, heard that as well. Yeah, but the UK doesn't do it for whatever reason. Um, yeah, and so I, I believe as well the um, the stuff the testosterone they give to transmasculine people is also pretty expensive because they want to give you the good stuff. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> I, well, I also my only experience of knowing what that is like in the UK is this one. British guy who yeah. gets one injection in the butt every three months, and I was like, mm. "Are you fucking kidding me? Like what?" Yeah, I get my testosterone. So weird. Blo- I get my testosterone blockers every three months now. It seems so strange. Well, that's the thing. A three month uh, uh, um, injection that lasts twelve weeks is very expensive. Yeah, but you totally. pay the standard rate here, so it's um, eight pounds something for a prescription in the UK if you're not a full time student who is under 20, 20 something. I know I'm too old for it. Whatever it is, I'm too old for it. Okay. <laughs> or if you have some um, other some other um, thing and that qualifies you. So being unemployed, for example, being on job seekers allowance, which is basically our country's version of welfare. Yeah. Gotcha. So it's it's a long process and it's very tiresome and there's a lot of gatekeeping, uh, but it will get you there. And basically, this all comes. This is all a much simplified version of the system that started which only a couple of years ago still required you to do what they call real-life experience for a year um, in your target gender before you got anything. And so, as Lux was talking about before, as involves tra- like, like trans women, for example, wearing, having to, like, wear very, very feminine clothes, like, out and about for a year. Before that, I think it was longer than a year they were doing it for. And this is basically just forcing you to go out and drag for years um, unwanted and putting up with basically horrible horrible um consequences of that because people are mean and they don't like seeing men and women's clothes which is what you will look like at that point probably unless you're very feminine to start with um and this only calmed down recently um basically the end you can get what what um i'm sorry because this is completely stupid what the (laughs) government put in in the mid-2000s which is a thing called a gender recognition certificate which will basically mean that your le- your gender is legally female, even though it already said on your passport and driving's license. If you don't have this thing, they can send you to male prison, and it's not illegal. And this happened to lots of people in this country. And basically what they do is you have enough medical evidence, you bring it to a court, to a gender recognition panel, and they will judge if you're feminine enough or masculine enough to be judged to be your target gender. And only then can you not go to men's prison or women's prison if you commit a crime. That is horrifying. It's fucking terrifying. And you see a lot of stories, especially the last couple of years, of, like, very feminine trans women ending up, like, in a male prison. And it's like, you can see this the, the problem, right? And people just don't, they don't care. It's like, this is the law. She could have got her gender recognition certificate. It's like, why should she have to be going to a panel of judges to decide whether she's a woman or not? It's the same sort of indifference that people are showing toward trans women in the U.S. in terms of all of the bathroom laws that keep, that keep cropping up. Like, yeah. 
it's like do you you don't realize the consequences of having someone who like it depends on like of course it depends on whether they pass quote unquote or like to what degree uh I think the more masculine you look in terms like the more masculine your physical appearance is and you know we'll put air quotes around masculine yeah um if you're wearing feminine attire your likelihood of getting harassed or like assaulted if you are forced to use a men's bathroom is like drastically drastically high mm. uh, and people are just like eh, who cares <laughs> People don't think about it unless it's themselves or someone close to them a lot of the time. Yeah, so they're, they're just like, my wife and children, I can't have the penis exposed to them in the bathroom. It's like, have you... Okay, I understand. I'm, I'm proud of you for having never gone into a women's bathroom. Like, good on you, male politician. Uh, oh, I fill bet in they the blank. But we're giving them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> I'm being nice. I'm being nice. Good on you, male politician, insert name here, for not going into women's restrooms before. But do you know what? There's only stalls. There's only stalls in there. There's nobody whipping their genitalia out in front of your children. Like, uh, seriously. And if they are, they're probably cis. That's also illegal. <laughs> like, exactly. It was already illegal. Why do you need to make it more illegal? illegal. <laughs> uh, the only other thing I was going to oh, mention, uh, just to get all the, cra- all the moaning out of the way... Is um, oh, what was I going to say is that um, before gay marriage was legalized, um, if you if you wanted to transition and you were married, you had to divorce or annul your wife or husband to transition, and that has been stopped now with the marriage. If it's in a civil partnership, um, you can't um, transition, and a civil partnership is basically what the government brought in a, before gay marriage was legalized to sort of make it so gay people could get sort of married ish. But not yeah. really. Um, like so, a domestic partnership here. Yeah, yeah. So um, that can you can't transition if you're in a civil partnership without breaking it off because they don't want it to be available for straight people. And if you transition during a civil partnership, you're gonna be, it's gonna be a straight relationship, and the government doesn't want that for civil doesn't want civil partnerships to be straight because that's a gay thing. Uh, okay. <laughs> which is also sort of weird. It is weird. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I'll note before I move on just real quick that I just like yesterday got like official shit done and I am now like legally male, which like, please don't, don't, no, 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 don't celebrate. Don't celebrate. (laughs) It's like, it's cool that I had a goal and I got it, but it's also like, this is a forced move. I didn't really want to do this. Yeah. I need to in order to get a passport in case I need to flee my country of birth. Mm. Like, it's not a happy, fun time. Like, no. I'm glad that I did it and now it's done. It is a but step. But also, like, but it's yeah, not a step it's a you step. Wanted. Yeah, I mean, I would have preferred, I mean, I hated, I absolutely hated writing in F for job ap- applications and for medical stuff. So it's a relief that I won't have to do that anymore. I yeah. would have preferred to change it to non binary, but that's not an option. And it's still not, it doesn't secure me like having it set to mail does. Yeah. But I'm gay married now. Hey. Hey. Yeah, exactly. Um, Aw. Yeah, so. I, I, I mean, obviously, like, it'd be better to be non, to be, to have a non-binary option, but in the, um, with the way the Trump administration's currently eyeing trans people, that's not going to be available for a while. Yeah, I'm trying to be, like, stealth in, like, this environment right yeah. now, so doesn't help me any 
No. Um, the good thing about our country's um, fascism is it isn't anti-LGBT for some reason. That's <laughs> <laughs> a very uh, minimum. Yeah, it's just racist. Just racist. <laughs> xenophobic, but whatever. Yeah, both, honestly. You had a hard time finding anything about the history of treatment, like how it, treatment has evolved over there? I mean, there's, there's some stuff. I mean, basically, it's the history of treatment in the West, because it all kind okay. of comes under one roof. Like, as okay. the movies would tell you, Lily Elby was the first person to have an official gender reassignment surgery. Um, she died a few days later from complications. Um, basically, uh, at, like in post World War Two era is when the re- they, people, things really started moving in that direction. And from what I can tell, it was mainly um, trans feminine, trans feminine things. Although there was some trans masculine um, stuff happening. Um, there's a really good article called "The Brief History of Transgender Issues." If you're interested in tran- a brief take on trans history, <laughs> which is a lot of detail that we shouldn't go into, or we'll just be reading the article. Yeah, basically. Yeah. It's got, like, it mentions Harry Benjamin and stuff like that. Um, when, um, we've come a long way. I mean, basically, when we first, when, when trans women first started taking hormones, they were taking Premarin, which is an extract of horse urine. And, uh. yeah, and it's not, wasn't very strong. And we've been slowly developing other techniques since. Honestly, the main problem with this as a history is that it's not ongoing. And it's especially ongoing because there's not been much research done on it in the intervening years even as long as it's been. I mean, the time, the, the medical, the scientific and medical breakthroughs we've made, we've made since the 1950s to now, compared to what's been done with trans people is ridiculous. Like, they had so, they had so much time to get all this right, but no one gave a shit. <laughs> yeah, that's also true for um, HIV treatment. Yeah, yeah. I did um, also want to mention that, um, to get onto the topic of drag again, as we sort of did last time, a lot, a lot of the problems with acceptance and stuff and a lot of um, issues with um, medical intervention sort of arise in the drag scene. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Paris is Burning, there's a couple of interesting moments in that where a couple of the drag queens, as they call themselves, um, some of them, they were like, oh, I'm not going to transition because it's too difficult and things like that. And like some of them, they did take medical transition and they're, they're gonna. They're, they they talk themselves. They talk. They they're talking about themselves as if as as a gay man, and they're saying, "I want to be a real woman. When I get my surgery, I'll be a real woman." And mm-hmm. a lot of this dialogue is coming out of there because, especially around that time in like the late twentieth century, a lot of the time trans women were seen as just very very gay men, like so gay yeah. they wanted to be a woman and be a woman so they could get trapped more guys and it's not about you it's about penis because it's always about penis because we live in a, we live in a patriarchal society where everyone assumes everyone's constantly obsessed with penis uh, so there's yeah so there's there's a lot of stuff going on out there in the era of the hiv epidemic and leading up to stonewall and things like that there's a lot of acceptance a lot of um lack of acceptance and confusion among people, because the medical community isn't reaching out, and because transsexuality is it's a, it's a mental disorder, and it's not mentioned, and gay people are barely are even accepted at all, so why would trans people don't look at trans people as anything? Yeah. But like, either yeah. garbage or we don't exist. So. Yeah, the idea of trans of the trans of the um, sort of male to female surgeries being the 
ultimate um, goal of gay men is completely nuts and bollocks. But in looking back, a lot of people, even today, a lot of people that um, a lot of a lot of people that previously identify as gay men, they probably were trans. And same with like transmasculine people. Like, there's probably a lot of people out there that they are trans. <laughs> Um, the guy who made Rocky Horror, we would hate me to say this, but he's basically gone record as saying he's trans, and but he hate, but he agrees with Jermaine Greer and doesn't think trans people exist, but he described all the things he's going through, and he's almost definitely trans. Um, Eddie Izzard. Or, um, or at least agender or genderqueer or something. Yeah, exactly. Um, Eddie Izzard recently, he's been identifying as a transvestite for years. Um, mm. He recently basically blasted him, in the light of transgender issues, finally getting like some visibility, people asked him, "So, what do you think of this?" And he's like, "I've been saying I've transgender for years, but no one knows what the word means, so I just started saying transvestite." And it's like, "Holy shit!" And so, is Eddie Izzard like actually a trans person? Yeah, I don't think like, he's... rather th- rather than like a crossdresser. I don't. I don't think he's ever planned to medically transition. Okay. But he did describe himself as transgender recently. After basically huh. saying that he called himself a transvestite for years because no one really knew what it meant. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of cases of sort of that. And I think that's a lot of the reason why such... why the I mean, there are histories, and if you read certain books like Whipping Girl, you get a taste of this and things like that um, by Serrano. But a lot of the reason why it's not so widespread is, I guess, because there's... Even today, a lot of people are still in the closet about it. And it's only really... The, the latest couple of generations that finally feel like it's something they can talk about and something you can be out with. And you, people don't aren't trying to sweep it under the rug as much anymore. And maybe that's just me as a sort of pseudo-activist trying to um, seeing, a, seeing a way to push through. But I feel like that's a lot of the reason why um, this sort of... It seems to be kind of hidden in a little bit of obscurity and why, like, pages on trans history are, like, sometimes less than a whole page long. <laughs> But yeah, if they find that Guardian article, if you want to have a nice, have a little short read about it, it's it's very brief and it doesn't go very far into the into the past. I basically stops in nineteen ninety nine, but uh, um, it's okay, worth a read. So that's fairly recent stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in the nineties, people didn't really talk about like. Apparently, um, I was just at my dad's on Monday, uh, President's Day for his birthday, mm. and. Uh, we can't, we someone brought up the character Chiana from the show Farscape. Um, I don't know if anybody's familiar with it. It was a space show, and this chick Chiana was like already kind of slutty, and also she was like blue skinned and like had this pixie cut, and all of her outfits were exaggeratedly like forming to her figure. Mm-hmm. And apparently, like my gaze lingered, and my dad noticed this, yeah, but didn't say anything to me about it, and I was like. <laughs> the fuck, dad? Like, why didn't you say anything? And he was like, look, at that time, it was still not, like, something you wanted for your kids. It was still something that was, like, bad, at least publicly. So I just, it was something that you just noticed, and you didn't say anything about it. And Mm. just let it happen and pass by. And I was like, god damn it, dad. Like, that makes sense, but also fuck you. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, there's, um, there's very little trans representation in the media in general. I mean, there's a fi- oh, there's, yeah. there's a little bit in like and in like anime and manga actually, which is quite well, actually quite a lot considering that Japan is quite famously quite not very progressive on these issues. Oh yeah, 
There's a couple of ca- the character a, Cowboy Bebop and stuff like that. Some cool stuff. There's one in Attack on Titan, too, but that's a whole other episode. Oh, um, I mean, that's spoilers. I haven't got past <laughs> I haven't read the manga yet. Well, it's actually, well, it, I mean, it's only mentioned in the manga, but it's also, like, if you if you pay close enough attention, you'll notice in the show, it's just one character that they don't use any pronouns for. Oh. And in the manga, they refer to the character with they pronouns. So it's just someone who is ambiguous. Like, it's voiced by a woman in the show, but it's ambiguous as to what, like, so you kind of assume that they're a woman, but then if you know the manga, then you know that they refer to them as a they, and in the show, they just don't gender the character at all. (laughs) But that's a totally different episode. I want to circle back. Yeah. Um, Because the, like, one main difference that I wanted to talk about with the system over in the UK versus the system over here in the United States, like... I know that you've mentioned, like, private methods of getting treatment, like, um, just as opposed to going through the NHS. Yeah. Like, do you have insurance involved in that process, or is that mostly, like, a you go to a private thing and then they just, it's just out-of-pocket cost? Certain, um, certain workplaces can give you health insurance. It's very rare because the NHS is a thing, and it's so encompassing. Mm-hmm. Um, certain jobs will give you, say, Booper, that's one of the big healthcare providers. So if your work gives you Booper, then you have private health, insura- private health insurance. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time it would be just paying for it, and the payment is expensive. Um, insur- private uh, Health insurance is probably going to become a more of a big thing in the next decade because the Tories are systematically destroying the NHS. So you can look forward yeah. to at least that. There'll be like some, some nice benefits to people who have a certain, certain jobs. Um, but it's not as universal in as in the US where I I believe that most jobs have to provide you with some level of health insurance if I'm correct. Uh I don't actually know what the requirements are on that but when the day comes that the NHS is dismantled and you're needing help navigating the <laughs> health insurance industry you know that there's plenty of Americans who are going to have a whole lot of experience to help you on that because that's the main difference I think the biggest and most important difference between getting health care in the United States, regardless of what it's for, but particularly with transition and with surgeries and stuff like that, is that we don't have any form of socialized health care. Like, we have Medicaid, we have Medicare, and I think that the ACA, like, mandated that those two programs cover at least some hormone stuff or, like, yeah, they some should. minor things. Uh but as I actually, I thought that, that that it made it a requirement that federal employees who are using, like, the type of insurance that federal employees get, I thought that it was a requirement for those insurance providers to cover those services, but it mostly just made it to where it was, like, it's an option, mm. and it's a suggested option. But, like, so I was looking through the paperwork from this most recent job that I had, which was a sort of government job, uh... And I was like, wow, neither of these plans cover, like, anything surgery-related with transition. Like, it explicitly says that it doesn't do that. Yeah, and I was nuts. like, okay, well, hopefully they'll still cover my hormones, at least. Yeah, it's weird, like, people, like, they fairly specifically put in clauses to exclude that sort of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, to, it's so you can't use loopholes, like, whatever... I need to get this because it has to do with my sex or something like that. You know, they have to be specifically like, we don't cover that thing. And most insurance providers don't cover that. And not it's not even just like, okay, 
it's it's considered like a mental disorder. That's the kind of diagnosis that you get. Gender I've dysphoria also had, is. Yeah. Well, yeah, gender dysphoria, gender identity disorder is what it used to be called, gender dysphoria now. Yeah. Um, actually, my official diagnosis is still GID. Really? Even though I was diagnosed after, two, that, two, eh, after 2013. Yeah, I don't know why. Hmm. I'm not particularly bothered by it. It's just that that's the fact of the situation. Yeah. Um, but there's also, like, other diagnoses that, like, your like, insurance companies will just not provide medication for, even though they're almost identical to other disorders. Like, I was first diagnosed with dysthemic disorder and not major depressive disorder. So mm. the insurance that I had at the time would have covered my medication if I had MDD, but I had a milder diagnosis, so they wouldn't cover it. That's... So... Insurance, yeah, it's so complicated. They will basically look for literally any loophole to not cover whatever you pay f- to whatever care you need, which is like, why am I paying you money then? Oh, because you're making money off of me paying you every month and you can just opt out of giving me the service that I'm paying for because of some loophole in the clauses. Ugh. So, so some industries should never be run for profit and one of them is healthcare. And I agree. I totally agree. It's we cannot afford to incentivize this sort of thing to profit. It's, it's people's lives are literally at stake. Like the U.S. life expectancy for poor people is not great uh, compared to other countries with similar GDP. And there's a fucking good reason for that. And I don't know why our government thinks that it's such a good idea to emulate you guys. But um, <laughs> yeah, f- fix your shit, U.S. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, man. I don't even know what to do. I have no idea what to do. <laughs> Canada. I'm just like, yeah, I, I'm thinking, they I, they, I did, they probably don't want me. I don't have any skills. You got YouTube skills. skills? Yeah, but I don't make an appreciable income to contribute to their GDP. Yeah. Maybe in a couple years. Yeah, makes a Canadian targeted video. It's just mooses and poutine. They're, they're Canadian. Poutine. <laughs> I do want to try that. I, I follow several Canadian YouTubers, and I'm like, damn, that look like it sounds fucking amazing. It's like tater tots with, like, chili cheese and a bunch of fucking cheese curds on top of it. It sounds amazing. It's basically chips, cheese, and gravy, right? Uh, I think there's cheese curds yes. rather than actual cheese, but it's similar, right? I think, yeah. Chips and gravy is uh, a big thing in the north of England, so I feel like it'd be it, comfortable for me. I don't know. It depends on what kind of sauce it is. I don't know how you define gravy, but I wouldn't call uh, what I've seen. No, because Amer- I wouldn't recall. No, no this, is, this is a U.S. problem because American gravy is weird. Okay. American gravy is what? white and thick. Well, there's like two main types of gravy over here. There's like white gravy, which is, you know, like you said, like it's thick. It's usually more for like breakfast for like sausage breakfast is usually mixed in there what? and you... <laughs> Well, you, you, biscuits and gravy is a thing. But like you biscuits get the, are, that's, you, no, 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 no. You do biscuits not, wrong too. <laughs> I know. It's not the cookies. It's the fluffy. It's scones. I don't know what you, is it really? It's basically you scones. You call them scones, even if they have no like fruit in them? Yeah. Okay. So we take scones that are fluffy and flaky <laughs> and then we pour this gravy on it. And I actually don't like it very much, but it's a common thing in the United States, especially in the South. Um, but then we also have, like, brown gravy, which is usually... Uh, Real gravy. Like a beef stock. Yeah. It's a beef stock, and it's what you would pour over your mashed potatoes or, like, mm. dip your steak into. Yes, I know, right? 
So that's the Canadian gravy, right? They use our gravy, like the proper gravy. Like brown gravy? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good. <laughs> Where did we even get on this tangent? <laughs> you, look, the, the semantics of gravy, that's not even the right word. The etymology of gravy is very important. Why did that, why did it come up? I can't remember. I honestly don't remember. Canada, how it even you're moving up. to Canada. We're oh. all moving to Canada. Oh, we're moving to Canada. Yes, yeah. yes. We're having a mass exodus. Yeah, it's gonna be cis Atlantic podcast. We're all gonna be living in Canada. Yeah, cis Atlantic podcast. Be <laughs> <You> pretty good. <laughs> we would convey the totally wrong idea. Yeah. To anyone who who thought like who wanted to look at. I it. mean, we'd lose the pun, but I quite like it. Ah. Uh. That is really funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Okay. Do we have well, some we've, No, I have really nothing else. I was about to say, we've, we've gone on tangents, we've giggled, we've made jokes. That sounds like it, it was a really good episode, I think. Very yeah. informative. I learned some things, so I hope that uh, people out there listening learn some stuff as well. Yeah, I learned stuff too. Constantly learning and growing. Yeah. And it's it's a bad day if you didn't learn something Exactly. New. And isn't that what podcasting is all about? Or dick jokes. I don't know. It sort of depends. <laughs> I guess. It sort of depends on the podcast. <laughs> is this one going to be one of those? Is it going to be the fact podcast, the dick joke podcast? You know, sometimes it's both. Sometimes it's both. <laughs> all right. All right. <laughs> Uh, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up now? Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, so thank you so much, everybody, for listening to the second episode of the podcast Transatlantic, a conversation between two people who are trans across the pond from one another. We're going to work on that slogan a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it rambled on. It was better at the beginning. I had my shit together at the beginning, I and so. now I don't. We can look at making anyway. write an official one if we have to, if we can't control ourselves. Yeah, it'll be all right. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope that you'll be around next week for whatever the fuck we're talking about next week. Things not to say to trans people, maybe I don't know. Yeah, maybe. All right. See you next time. Bye. Bye.